Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. This is Bewilderbeasts, an infotainment show dedicated to inspiring curiosity for all ages by investigating the ways animals intersect at humanity. I am not a historian, an ethologist, a researcher, a scientist, a zoologist, a trained audio engineer, or an expert in, well, anything. Y'all, I'm lucky if I can remember to put my clean laundry in the dryer before it gets funky. And while I make every effort to present things as accurately as I can with a fun flair, I'm going to mess up. And that's okay. I hope I've given you a nice place to jump off from on your own adventures into curiosity, or at the very least, I've given you the key to win your next round of trivia. Hello and welcome to Bewilderbeasts. I'm your host, Melissa McHugh McGrath, still recording from the tiniest podcast studio closet outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Today on Bewilderbeasts, we are going to talk about bears in the Quality Assurance Department, a crossbow conservationist, a sleepy walrus gets a rude awakening, and, and finally, the winners of the rate and review thingy that we've been talking about for months. Okay, let's go. Okay, first things first. The winners of a get a sticker, a shout out, and or a story on the show rate review thingy. Well, we have our three reviewers to shout out. And the first is Bonky Moon. You'll be getting a sticker. And if you or your family members would like to submit a story or get, you know, a more personalized shout out for you or a friend, please let me know. Bonky Moon says, I'm so happy I discovered this podcast. My kids, wife, and I have really enjoyed it and we're hooked. Great storytelling, important lessons for kids in this crazy world we live in, and fascinating trivia. Thanks, Bonky. Next, we have Responsible Dog Parent, who will also be getting a sticker and all the other stuff. And she, or he, or they, or neither, neither both say, This podcast was recommended by Patricia McConnell, and I'm so glad I gave it a listen. I'm absolutely hooked. I love learning and trivia and animals, and this combines all three. I finally caught up, and I can't wait for the next episode. Thanks, Responsible Dog Parent. And thanks to my friend Trisha for sharing this podcast with her followers. And if you don't know Patricia McConnell's work, I cannot recommend it enough. She has written a bunch of books, including The Other End of the Leash, which is not so much a dog training book per se, but more of a put yourself in your dog's shoes book that I reread every year as a dog trainer to kind of help keep me grounded in this work and why I do what I do. She has tons of books on how to work with your problem behaviors like resource guarding or fear or separation anxiety and more. Plus, she's just the nicest human on the planet. So if you have a dog, please check out her work. And finally, this is not going to roll off the tongue, but I'm going to do my best. We have ANRVA123. Anerva123? Yeah. And he, she, they, neither, neither both say, Learned about this podcast via the episode for Emily Spinach. If you know, you know, but we'll be back for more. Highly recommend. Thank you, Anerva123 or something. I tried. If you want a more uh, personalized, uh, legitimate shout out, please feel free to submit. And that goes for a responsible dog parent, too. 
All right. So if you left those reviews, email bewilderbeastpod at gmail.com so I can send you your stickers and let me know if you'd like more personalized shout outs or say hi to a friend or a story idea for the show for me to dive down deep on. And if you'd like a sticker and you didn't win, that's okay. We have these cool rainbow stickers and they're fun with like that little Bombi logo. Feel free to listen for other ways to win a sticker down the road. Pictures of the stickers will go up on Instagram at bewilderbeasts on Instagram and bewilderbeastpod on Facebook. Or you could just email me and I'll just send you a picture of what they look like. And since you're here, consider supporting the show. PayPal.me slash muttstuff. I put all the money towards equipment website, podcast hosting fees. I might even do a Patreon thing down the road, but I don't really know what kind of things that you might want or get out of this. So if I eventually do a Patreon, which I guess is like the thing podcasters do, I want to make sure that you get something that you like in return for donating to the show in any capacity. So if you have ideas, please send them in. I'm truly doing this because I love it and I'm curious. I'd be doing this anyway, so while yes, everything helps the show, it's not something I want anyone to worry about. If you would like to support the show but don't want to go through PayPal or think about Patreon-y things, that's totally cool too. Just rate and review on iTunes, tell a friend, share on social, talk it up. That's what Trisha did. And if you're the strong, silent type who just doesn't like social media or review things, the fact that you are even here to listen and go on this journey with me wherever it leads means the world to me. So thank you. Podcast downloads are up. So thank you for being there and for being a good listener. Knowing you're there downloading while we're still rather isolated-ish at the tail end of COVID has been the motivator and the driving force of the hours of research and script writing I do. And I'll be editing and stuffing myself into a closet and talking into, well, an empty closet. It's dark. But knowing y'all are there and are listening, every minute of this is worth it. And I'm not alone in this dorky animal stuff. And it feels so refreshing to not be alone after this very lonely year. So that's enough housekeeping. In the words of one of my favorite podcasts, The Truth Shall Make Ye Fret, it's all about Terry Pratchett's Discworld series who inspired the flying turtle who killed a guy segment a few weeks back. Let's make a podcast. I remember the first time I went, quote, real camping. Not pitch a tent in my living room to watch TV camping as a kid, or as a slightly older kid pitching a tent in the backyard with my siblings camping, only to wake up sweating because when the sun comes up, it turned the inside of the tent into a greenhouse and then run inside, make breakfast, cereal with marshmallows in the old country crock margarine tub and watch cartoons. You know, we were really roughing it. But real camping, real camping on the ground with rocks jutting into your spine, peeing in a hole in the ground and schlepping food coolers back to the car overnight because, well, bears. See, bears are notorious for getting into things. In fact, I just watched a Mythbusters with my daughter, Ace. They were trying different kinds of deterrents for bears and watching this bear open. Open the door to a minivan like he's going to go to soccer practice. He tore apart the interior of the car to get to an igloo-style container for a fish. It was jaw-dropping. I was about ready to just give him the keys. He can just drive us all out of these woods. Bears are strong and agile and have a remarkable sense of smell. So how does a company produce a cooler to protect food from bears? Well, very much like the FBI hires hackers to show them how to break the internet, 
Manufacturers are turning to bears who have been put in bear jail for breaking into human containers to test other containers. Well, not human containers. That's not quite right. I mean, I'm a human container, right? And and we're not bear-proof. I meant human-made containers. Uh, anyway, these containers can save bears' lives, and here's how. When bears break into trash cans, windows, open doors to minivans, or somehow get calorie-dense food from humans, like chocolate, trail mix, cans of tuna fish, a jug of mayonnaise, pizza, it's super validating to their behavior. And as much as bears are afraid of humans, they also are not dumb. If they are reinforced by getting into our stuff to get a good, calorie-dense meal, that breaking and entering behavior is rewarded and honestly easier than picking enough berries in a day to feed a bear. Think about it. Would you rather do a little light illegal B&E for whatever's in the refrigerator or pick 30,000 berries every day in the heat? with bugs and other bears for all of the days that you are not hibernating. Yeah, I for sure am breaking into that minivan. But once the bear figures out that they can just get human stuff, they forgo berries and just seek out human dwellings and campsites and suburban environments, cabins, cars, everything, because the food, if found, is more calorie-rich and dense, and it's just better than eating those berries. So this puts bears at risk of interacting with humans and eventually getting shot, euthanized, and all sorts of very bad, no-good things that we don't want to do. For example, of the 73 bear deaths near Yellowstone National Park in 2018, 50 were related to humans. The bears are acclimating to us, and when they come into contact with people, bears die. So what do you do if you have a bear who wants to be a people, puts humans and himself or herself at risk, and you don't want to euthanize it? Enter the heroes of the story. The Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in Yellowstone National Park, or GWDC. To be fair, because they only have so much space, many bears still do have to be euthanized as humans go further into bear territory and bears' food sources become compromised. But there are a few bears currently at GWDC, including Corum, a male grizzly whose weight fluctuates between 550 and 680 pounds depending on the season. Preach. He was found wandering through Kalispell, Montana, checking porches for dog kibble. Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks officials trapped Corum three times before he finally just ended up at GWDC. There's another bear named Spirit, She's a female grizzly who just could not stay away from golf courses in Whitefish. This poor lady was relocated six times, once as far as 100 miles away, but she just found her way back to that easy, easy source of food. Before one of her cubs was actually hit by a car, then they finally took her to GWDC. But here's the thing, they are not there rent-free. Oh, no, 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 no. These bears have to earn their keep, and this is where they put their B&E skills to great use. They test products to see if they can pass rigorous, and I mean rigorous, bear testing from real bears. Companies and manufacturers will pay a fee to GWDC to see if they can test their products for the coveted certification from the IGBC. You know, there's a lot of letters in here. IGBC is the International Grizzly Bear Committee. 
The Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center with bears like Coram and Spirit is the only place in the entire world who does this kind of testing, and that companies can get their literal seal of approval. If the containers can stand up to the bears for a whole hour, they earn a bear-resistant certification. But this is not as easy as you think. Usually when products fail, it happens quickly. A bear will just shred a cooler or put a hole in a trash can and then its claw can fit and rip it apart Hulk-style. The bear patented CPR method, which looks like a bear is actually performing life-saving methods on a lifeless igloo cooler. But when an 800-pound bear is using that very particular hands-on-hands maneuver and bouncing on a product, it better be bear-proof because not much would be able to withstand that. The fee that these companies pay helps support the captive bear's expensive food habit, living expensive, and the educational programs and resources at this center. The videos of these bears jumping on coolers, opening trash cans, chewing their food canisters is something to behold. I've put a few on Twitter and on Facebook this week, so do check them out or go to YouTube and search for bear testing coolers for some very ragey music that you would expect to see like a a Ford F-850 truck or something like it. Like quick cuts of nature, people rappelling off a cliff face and kayakers and rapids and then cuts to the bear walking up to a cooler and biting it. More kayakers, then the bear doing CPR on it, then more rappelling, bear trying the Hulk maneuver, more rage music, big muddy new trucks, and the bear sitting on his butt like a human. Just tosses the cooler and walks away. No food for bear, sad bear but a live bear. Do go check these out and know that while these bears can never go back to the wild, their hard work at this center is helping ensure that other bears don't end up at the center or worse. Good job, bears, all you hardworking bears. And yes, even you, Nikina, the one bear who doesn't really want to do this work. I think she just wanted to be a Broadway star and not a product tester. Maybe in time, Nikina will find something that gives her as much joy as Sam, the 1,000-pound grizzly bear busting up stuff Mythbuster style. Maybe they could get her an art class. This is how the Atlas Obscura article started on saving the Lear's macaw, a rare Brazilian parrot. Maximo Cardoso had never used a crossbow before, but he was intuitively able to assemble the Barnett's Raptor FX, a model typically marketed for deer hunting. The field guide had also displayed natural marksmanship, so it was agreed he would be the one to launch the poison. This story has everything. Crossbows, poison, saving endangered animals, killer freaking bees who will, you know, kill you repelling beekeepers. And they say science is lame. Science is clearly not for the faint of heart. So why the poison crossbows James Bond level action movie stuff for birds? Well, let's back this bus up a bit and talk about killer bees. These are different from last year's murder hornets and different from the murder hornet adjacent insects that Asian honeybees surrounded and legit used twerking to murder and poop to hide their hives covered in episode 23 of Bewilderbees. No killer bees are different. These bees are typically much more defensive than other varieties of honeybees. They do not handle disturbances with ease. So European honeybees, those are the ones that we all know and love. They're pretty chill, calm, 
pollinate everything, no bees, no food, these are the ones that we thank. But killer bees, also called Africanized honeybees, can chase a person a quarter of a mile. That's a full lap around a track in track and field. Or the point at which my kid starts complaining that she has walked forever. And are we there yet? Killer bees have killed around a thousand people. And when people are stung by these bees, the victims tend to get 10 times as many stings than from their European honeybee counterparts. For every one sting someone would get from a regular old honeybee, killer bees sting 10 times. They have killed horses and other animals. No, 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 no. So how on earth did these bees get here? Why are they called Africanized honeybees? Okay, so in 1956, East African lowland honeybees were brought to Brazil to do what we humans keep just doing, justifying bringing invasive species to either do something better, in this case, honey production, or kill off and manage other species like the cane toads or national park goats or rabbits in Australia, etc., etc., etc. We have discussed all of these before, and we probably will again. The African bees were then crossed with European honeybees in the hopes to make honey production more efficient. It's like what people keep doing to dogs, but less fluffy. And while some crosses are bad ideas, like a bulldog poodle mix, what would that even be? A boodle? A bulldoodle? Anyway, I'm picturing the stockiest, snortiest dog with a frizzy, curly perm. But like any good suspense thriller, 26 swarms of this new hybrid escaped quarantine in 1957. Cue the horror movie music. Camera pans to stunned scientists and beekeepers. A close-up of Jeff Goldblum. What have we done? This feels very much like Florida's spring break and COVID cases. This just in. 26 swarms of college-age kids have descended upon the beach. There's no social distancing and lots of bad choices, no masks. Breaking news, Chad. We are witnessing a co-ed licking a bear-proof cooler. I don't know why. Pretty sure that's not the safest practice in COVID times. Back to you, Chad. Since then, this hybrid bee has continued to spread through South America and has arrived in North America in 1985. Five years later, hives of killer bees were found in the United States, leading this podcaster at the very tender age of nine to utterly panic when her grandmother, who believed in such things like satanic panic of the 80s and thought Madonna was the devil's music, said that killer bees were coming and they would be the biggest threat of the 1990s. Ha. Ha ha. Ha. She was wrong. There were so many worse threats in the 1990s, like clear platform shoes, so many broken ankles, Tamagotchis, rising global capitalism, the Iraq war, Tanya Harding, high-rise jeans getting stuck on that home job belly button ring, which probably got infected, and the fear of Y2K in 1999, the year I graduated from high school when everyone thought society would come to a crashing halt, and it didn't. People stocked up on food, waited with bated breath as Dick Clark counted down to midnight, 
and nothing happened. For most people. But no, killer bees were not the biggest threat of the 1990s. And so while killer bees did not continue northwards, it didn't mean I wasn't absolutely terrified every time I went outside. So as these bees migrated, they might have found themselves evolving and crossbreeding with even more bee species, creating localized swarms that suit different regions like deserts and cliff faces and rainforests. Which brings us to present day and our crossbow conservationists. Maximo Cardoso, the guy from the beginning, the field guy who is now a bee assassin, he has to thread his crossbow bolts, which are like arrows but for crossbows, that have been modified to lift glass vials of insecticide, poison to kill insects, into tiny holes and cavities into the cliff faces. Inside these holes are where these Africanized bees are lurking. But Maximo Cardoso was really an accidental ace marksman. So while he's decked out in a full bee suit, you know, the white thing, the the whole head-to-toe, you look like a, a fencer on steroids, the white bee suit for protection, he hit these holes in one shot in many cases, and in some cases up to nine shots. I would still be there shooting for the first hole. There were 52 hives he had to hit in total with one to nine shots each. So I'll let the third graders in the community figure out that mathematical equation. So after the poison would calm the area from the attacking bees, the team would then send in climbing experts, also wearing protective bee gear, which I have done some very, very low-level rock climbing at a local rock gym. Climbing anything is hard anyway when you have all the gear, but doing it dressed in something that looks like a white biohazard suit seems like... It would be absolutely impossible. These climbers would have to climb the cliff, pacify the rest of the bees with the little smoker thing that you see in any documentary to do with how honey is made, and either kill the Africanized bees with insecticide or to calm them down enough to get in, take the honeycombs and the hive, and do this all dangling from ropes on the side of a cliff. According to the Atlas Obscura article, Africanized bee stings are dangerous in any circumstances, but during rappelling a cliff 80 meters in a remote area, the chance of rescue is very low. Just another day in the science office, kids. So what on earth does any of this have to do with parrots? All right, so these particular cliffs are the nesting grounds of the Lear of Macaw, one of the rarest parrots in the entire world. And as the parrots come home to roost and nest, they peek into the small openings to see if they can use this hidey hole to raise their baby macaws. It's not like a Motel 6 or anything and there's a light left on for you or a no-vacancy sign put up by the bees. But as the bees are in the hidey holes, the parrots cannot compete. So they just don't. They don't build nests, and their population continues to decline. To complicate matters even more... Not everyone hates the bees. Keep in mind the original purpose of creating these bees in the 50s was to make more honey. And by that metric, and that metric really alone, this was successful and locals considered this their honey. Their delicious, delicious, deadly honey. Honey tastes just so much better when you have to put your life on the line to get it. This honey is also used medicinally. According to research by the NIH, there are potential uses in medical science for royal jelly, which are like, um, which offer protective effects for wound healing and neurodegenerative disorders, and the propolis, 
That's reported to aid in gastrointestinal issues and allergies and skin problems. But these birds are in danger of dying off completely, and they are stunning birds. They are bright cyan blue. It's the brightest blue sky color that you can imagine. And in the 1980s, there were only 70 of these birds left in the whole world. Just 70. That's three and a half classrooms of kids with 20 kids in each class. That's not a whole lot of these birds if you consider the entire world. They were in serious trouble. So the other problem is because they are so beautiful, there's a lot of money in capturing and trading them on the black market. So while some of the people are going in to get Africanized bee honey, they are risking their life and limb to get honey. But some very not nice people are using the honey as an excuse to poach and nab some of the baby parrots right out of the nest, only to sell illegally, which is so not cool, dude. Not cool at all. Yes, some of the bees were killed through this, but the intention was to relocate as many as they could, which they did. The researchers and scientists put boxes at the base of the cliff with queens and hives to encourage bees to move along now and allow for relocation. This frees up the cliff hidey holes for the birds to come in, and the indications are that this is working. The carrot stick approach for the bees is keeping them away, and the birds are using the vacant cliff cavities to build nests. There are now baby birds. This is such a win-win-win. A win-win that nearly all of Jeff Goldblum's recent characters would be proud of. Imagine you're a kid in the city and you see a cow sleeping in a bus stop. Or a kid in the country and you see a rat the size of a medium-sized dog with a slice of pizza on your porch swing, smirking. Both of these would be absolutely jaw-dropping experiences in today's world of pics or it didn't happen. You would probably reach for your phone and start streaming it live to your favorite social platform. Now keep that idea in mind while I tell you this story. Imagine the Irish countryside. You're outside, wind in your hair, fields painted the greenest green that you've ever seen. Sheep. My God, so many sheep just sheeping around. And as you scan the landscape, your eyes come across a body of water. Nothing weird here, just water, birds, rocks, and... A walrus? Yes, a confused Arctic walrus who can grow up to over a ton in weight, just chilling on the rocky beach, trying to blend in. The theory is that this young walrus fell asleep on an iceberg somewhere near his home in the Arctic. Because of climate change, wind, and a lot of good or bad luck, depending on your perspective, this young walrus woke up in Ireland. Can you imagine falling asleep near the North Pole and waking up in an entirely new country? With grass, definitely, and bagpipes, probably? And more surprising, he ended up in County Kerry. Now, this is where I went on my honeymoon over a decade ago. County Kerry has a surprising feature that most people don't think about when they think about Ireland. Because the way the jet stream works and pulls warm water and weather from the south... It kisses the southwestern coast. So my husband and I, wandering in a country that is situated on the same parallel as Canada and Russia, 
were absolutely stunned and shocked to see palm trees and brightly colored tropical plants next to and interspersed with old ruins and farmland. It it was so cool. But if you're a walrus and your body type is not really suited for this lifestyle, I don't think he'd be as shocked in the good way as waking up in Ireland as I would be if I just happily woke up in Ireland. So this poor walrus started his journey back home. Well, how do you get back home when you're the first walrus in Ireland? Well, you start to go north and then stop and ask directions, only to discover that you had gone east instead of north. And you've ended up even further away in perhaps the worst place for a walrus. Wales. The country, not the animals. See, the orca is one of only two natural predators of the walrus, so this had to be a ding to his little walrus ego. Walruses have come back from humans nearly killing them off entirely in the 18th and 19th centuries, initially for blubber, and their tusks were valuable, and when hunting goes right, every part of the animal is used. But when trophy hunters just want to say, look at me, I got the biggest walrus ever, they don't use all parts of the body, or worse, they overkill just to take their bodies, or take one part and leave the rest to rot. That's not helping the environment, it's greedy, and it's not hunting, it's irresponsible and a blood sport. And that's what we did to the walrus. But countries have banded together in recent history to help the walrus and their numbers have started to bounce back. However, they are facing another threat from us humans and it is directly related to our world traveling walrus. Climate change is affecting the very ice flows and climate that animals like polar bears, who we discussed in episode two, walruses, and more depend on. With no ice, or ice that isn't as strong because it's melting faster and faster and faster, they have nowhere to go. And they swim. And swim. And swim. And swim. And swim. Looking for a place to rest, but swim. Further and further. Using precious energy, burning fat and resources. And swim. And swim. And swim. And with the mollusks that they eat die off because of acidification of the ocean, the food sources are at risk. And swim. And swim. And swim. And with no rest in sight, they can't swim anymore. They sink and drown. Walruses are more dependent on ice flows than polar bears, and that is saying something. This little walrus on the iceberg that floated down into subtropical County Kerry was weird enough. But now he has to get home. And ice doesn't float north. And Uber has a strict no-walrus policy. The best hope is that he can eat lots and lots of food in and near Wales, and then swim all the way to Greenland. That's 1,788 miles. It's those last 88 that'll get you. That's 68 marathons back to back to back swimming, carrying 2,200 pounds of your own weight with just flippers and no rest. There are those, me included, who think that this walrus should be the flippered face of climate change. Walruses are social animals. They are so smart and they depend on touch. They snuggle up to other walruses and they need social interaction, tactile input, and they thrive on physical contact, just like many humans. And he's all alone in Wales, avoiding Wales, and he needs to get home. 
So let's all do what we can to help this little guy and others like him. Use reusable cups. Don't buy plastic if you can. Turn off lights. See if you can switch to solar, wind, or water power. And if you're looking for a new car, consider hybrid or electric. Ask your power company what kilowatt options you have. For us, we can change to green energy while still getting our energy from our current power company. Use reusable bags at the grocery store. Talk to your schools, businesses, and city councils about taking steps to make environmentally friendly changes. In our city, we have banned plastic bags. It might not seem like a lot, but every little bit helps. And if we do all the little things, we can help little guys like this. Other things you can do? Well, maybe instead of watching a cartoon or a favorite show this week, commit to watching a documentary on aquatic animals. Ace and I are big fans of Dolphin Reef on Disney+, Plus, where you get to meet Echo, a bottlenose dolphin, exploring the reef and his friends, including my very favorite character in any documentary, a mantis shrimp, and his little run-in with a cuttlefish, who isn't very cuddly despite a very misleading name. And if you happen to like cuttlefish, you should check out the Varmin's episode on cuttlefish, where my little kid Ace got to drop some knowledge bombs about cuttlefish from this episode of Dolphin Reef. Full circle. There's also a documentary called Elephant, which teaches you the importance of water and migration in elephants and how we humans are making things harder. And when you watch these shows, it teaches you things about animals for sure, but it also makes you feel like these animals are your friends. And friends help and learn what they can do to make life better for their friends. So let's be friends to these animals and think about our walrus friend with every choice we make this week. And if there are updates on our walrus friend, I will put them in the show. I guess we can start a new segment, Walrus Watch or something. And if you hear anything about him, please send it into the show. Good luck, walrus. We're all pulling for you. And we all need to try to do better. So thank you for joining me today on Bewilderbeasts. If you like this podcast, you know what to do. Share, tell your friends, rate, review, name your first child Bewilderbeast, whatever you can do to support the show. If there are topics that you would be interested in hearing about on the podcast, know of any historical animals who changed the world, ridiculous animal stories, animals who help humans, or other animals who test products we use. There are multiple ways to send them in or let me know what you think of this show. Visit the website, bewilderbeastpod.com. There, you can find episodes to start with, share episodes, learn about the show, how to support the show, and see bonus art for some of the podcast episodes. Email bewilderbeastspod at gmail, tweet at bewilderedpod, DM or voice text at bewilderbeastpod on Facebook. The voice text feature is there if it's easier for you or your littles to share facts. It allows a person to leave a one-minute voice message on their favorite animal fact or resource for the show. You can also just lurk over at Bewilderbeasts on Instagram. I'm Melissa McHugh-McGrath, co-training director of the New England Dog Training Club, author of Considerations for the City Dog, and creator of Mutt Stuff Media and this podcast. Now go get curious. I got today's information on quality assurance bears, from wiseaboutbears.org, popularmechanics.com, outsideonline.com, and youtube.com on all of these cool videos of bears trying to break into all of these products. It is 
awesome, so go check it out. Also, big shout out to Varmints, who pointed me in this direction. Thanks so much. Information on our crossbow conservationists from Atlas Obscura on saving the Lear's macaw. Go read that article. Wikipedia.org on the Lear's macaw and on Africanized bees and the NIH.gov article on how honey is used in medicine. Information on the Arctic walrus friend in Ireland came from LiveScience.com, The Independence, TheGuardian.com. Links, as always, are in the description of today's episode. Intro music is Tiptoe Out the Back by Dan Leibowitz, and interstitial music is by MK2. Don't forget to like and subscribe, review and share with your curious friends. You know, all the stuff every other podcast tells you to do. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.